oftentimes the best opportunities are those that come with some risk. Your role is really to help your clients mitigate as much risk as possible while not getting in the way of them being able to take these kind of home run swings. Because ultimately, you know, if you don't take any risk, it's not how entrepreneurship works, right? There's no risk-free way to grow and run a business. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. Great episode, as always, that we have ahead of you. Rory, we're talking about entrepreneurship, and we are going to talk about some of the legal things that people need to be focused on as they're starting businesses, growing their businesses, whether you are going to open up an ice cream stand down the street or you're seeking venture capital money from some of the biggest angel investors that are out there. Rory, we should introduce you first. Rory Gill from Next Home Title Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal in Boston. I know you love it whenever we have other attorneys on, right? We do. And we're going to try my best not to go down the the deep technicalities here, but this will be a good episode for anybody who wants to get in business or wants to grow their their real estate business into something a little bit more professional and really kind of think about what strategies you have to protect yourself, but also to define your relationships with yourselves, your clients, your compatriots, and everybody. So with that, Jason, do you want to introduce our guest? Yes, yes. We Today we're going to be talking to Nick Troxel. He's with Troxel Fitch, which is a law firm based in Denver, Colorado. Troxel Fitch was founded to provide high-quality legal services to entrepreneurs in all walks of life, from venture-backed CEOs to backyard bootstrappers. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. How is life these days? It's uh, We've had a crazy couple of year, uh, couple of weeks with the financial systems that we're all seeing in the news. I'm sure that a lot of entrepreneurs are wondering what's going on with credit and their money and their accounts and things they never really thought about when they started their businesses. They had an awesome idea to launch Business X. You got to worry about banking and now banks are starting to fail. Uh, it's never a, it's always a fun time, you know, with the, the macro issues that affect us on the micro level. So not that you have to talk about banking and Silicon Valley Bank and all the issues that are happening there. But, but Nick, what do entrepreneurs have to start to think about when they want to launch a business and don't even know what attorney to talk to? Yeah, absolutely. No. So I, I'll unpack a couple of those things. What, you know, first, luckily enough, none of our clients we're severely impacted by any of that SVB stuff. So we're certainly grateful for that. I know our clients are as well, but it can, it can definitely be a, a shock to the system, right? I mean, these are companies who are typically strapped for cash, or not necessarily strapped for cash, but always kind of pursuing raising money, keeping tight lock on their runway, things like that. And then to have the bank, which is supposed to be where it's safe, be seen as maybe less safe. It, it, it's definitely cause shockwaves. You know, I'll say though, in, in, in what I've seen a lot in the M&A work that we're doing, or I should say kind of the general work we're doing is I've actually been doing more small business M&A that's uh, kind of cash flowing businesses more than I've seen venture stuff, at least kind of locally. So I wonder if this will be another kind of factor that pushes 
you know, private equity and things like that to doing more, you know, kind of blue collar roll ups, things like that versus investing in some of these kind of, you know, that, that model where, Hey, we're raising money constantly and then looking for an exit. So it'll be interesting to see and, you know, an interesting shift, but yeah. Rory, I've always been amused by these. I've never worked for a massive tech company, but, you know, tech company, we have a lot of friends that work in technology. Uh, you know, it certainly drives the economy here in Massachusetts and in many states. And, you know, a lot of these companies, they're in growth mode. They're raising money. They're really never profitable. And somehow they have an exit worth lots of money. Meanwhile, the small business entrepreneur is so focused on cash flow. And I know a lot of our listeners are in the real estate space. You know, we are the Real Estate Law Podcast and cash flow is king in the real estate world. I mean, appreciation is great. Tax benefits are cool, but you need cash to pay all the bills. So it's interesting to hear uh, that, you know, cash is once again uh, more and more important for some of these people that are bootstrapping these businesses that you're seeing uh, these days, Nick. Let's take a step back and let's figure out how you started this business because you started it right out of law school. And, you know, you, you've probably seen an awful lot in the years in which you've been operating. Yeah, absolutely. No. So, uh, you know, when I came to law school, I, I had an entrepreneurial passion already. I knew, you know, initially my plan was, hey, I'll get my undergrad degree in accounting, I'll get a law degree, and then I'll practice, you know, in big law for a while, make some money. But, but I always knew that I eventually wanted to uh, be an entrepreneur myself, you know, and, and throughout law school, I think I in some ways drank the Kool-Aid a little bit that you do in law school and that, uh, you know, big law, big law, you need to go do that. And so I, I was pretty set on, on wanting to do that and actually interviewed, you know, with like my top choice right after graduation, I thought I would be a, I thought I would be a shoe in and then ended up just never hearing back from anybody. And, uh, you know, it was pretty jarring at the time because I was still studying for the bar exam at the time I was kind of like, Hey, what, what do I do now? And it was a really a blessing in disguise because it gave me the ability to think on what I really wanted to do with my life. And, and it was really the first time I'd been able to look at it through that lens because I had come straight, you know, through undergrad, through law school. And, and it always kind of seemed, hey, you go work big law and things will, will figure themselves out. Um, so going through this process at the time, my roommate, my law, my roommate from law school, Josh Fitch, who's now my business partner. So we were roommates in law school. Um, and he, you know, he went through a personal tragedy close to graduation that pushed, you know, he lost his brother actually. And, um, that pushed him to really think about, you know, life's too short. I don't want to work for anybody else really ever. And so he had started thinking, Hey, I want to do my own thing, you know, fresh out of the gates first. Now at the time I was still, you know, pursuing these big wall gigs and, you know, for me, you know, neither of my parents ever made over a hundred K in their life. So I was like, you know, those numbers they throw out at you are insane. Um, but through up over the course of us living together, sending for the bar and things like that, he, he kind of whittled me down and started thinking more and more about what I wanted with, with my life. And I thought back on why I came to law school and, and wanting to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I, I, I kind of just looked at the lifestyle of a lot of big firm attorneys versus what I eventually wanted, right. Wanted to be able to pursue hobbies and have a family and things like that and enjoy my life, kind of be the captain of my own ship. And so probably about six months, I decided to, uh, of Josh, Hey, you know, it's funny. The first thing he told me was, well, Hey, you could have your, your name first, you know, after about six months of chat and I was like, Hey, look, you know, let's do this. Um, and so we dove in right away and, and we, uh, you know, we, we, uh, 
it, it was interesting for us because so when we graduated law school, I was 25 and he was 26. And people always think about, you know, when it, it, is there a better or a worse time to start a business? And, you know, for me, I, I don't know if there ever is a perfect time because when we looked at it, it was like, hey, we don't have any clients. We don't have any money. You know, we don't have, you know, it's going to be a slog. But then we looked at it like, hey, you know, in the future, you may have life, kids, commitments, you know, mortgage, things like that. At the time, we were kind of like, hey, what do we really have to lose? Um, so actually, we sat down the day after we were sworn in and uh, kind of mapped out the plan for the first year. Um, and, and we actually drove Lyft uh, for the first probably four months. We would go in and we would work in the law firm from like 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then we'd go drive lift till 10 p.m. Um, to just make some money to keep the lights on. A lot of canned beans and ramen noodles during those times too. But, um, like I said, I mean, when you have a, when you have a vision and we have a dream, it, 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 it was kind of fun. I mean, I, even though we're very successful now and, you know, certainly I, you know, life is better objectively in, in a lot of ways. You kind of miss that excitement of the, you know, having your back against the wall when you first start in this kind of sick way, right? Of, um, when you, when it's just kind of you seeing if there's any, you know, proving that you could, you could do it. So, um, yeah, we sat down that day and mapped out how we were going to do it. Um, and, and then we just started pounding the pavement. It's as somebody who's also started to practice right out of law school, I mean, there's a lot that people don't see and it's a, very different course though than going into big law um and doing like that so um congratulations on all the work and you know getting to to where you are today um but that leads me to have a few questions for you um it because studying law is one thing and and learning law and, and having the resourcefulness to help your clients out that way um is one thing but you going through this experience yourself how does that experience help you inform your clients um, above and beyond just learning the law um, for their business? No, that's a great question. And that's actually one of our branding pieces is that we are a law firm built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And and that's based on kind of going through those, those struggles of figuring out how to run the business while practicing law. Right. And so, you know, we, we've come across those, those, uh, kind of forks in the road where you have to make decisions on, Hey, what are the most important expenses? Um, you know, how do we view this in real life? And I think that helps us because the law, a lot of the times when you've never owned a business or kind of been in the trenches, um, you're only thinking about it theoretically. You're only thinking about risk theoretically and opportunity theoretically. And so that's why lawyers get the reputation that they're, you know, they always say no. Um, they say, Hey, no, there's a risk here. There's a risk here. Whereas for us, you know, having gone through that and seen that, Hey, you know, oftentimes the best opportunities are those that come with some risk. We learn that, that you know, your role is really to help your clients mitigate as much risk as possible while not getting in the way of, of them being able to take these kind of home run swings. Um, cause ultimately, if, you know, if you don't take any risk, you, you know, you're just not really, it's not how entrepreneurship works, right? There's no risk free way to, to grow and run a business. And so, you know, have, have, have having had those times where, uh, you know, we didn't know if we were going to keep the lights on having to drive lift and, you know, do, uh, We've always marketed the brand the same way or market branded the firm the same way in terms of helping 
businesses for grow and sell. Um, but when we first started, we were representing people getting sued by their credit card company, um, you know, for modest flat fees. So kind of just that mindset of understanding that, you know, hey, that entrepreneurial mindset of just figuring it out, right? You know, the, the number one rule is survival um, has helped us a lot. And how did you stitch together the resources in the beginning to put together your practice? Um, I know when I first started mine, uh, the very first thing I went to was a local bar association was having um, a seminar on how to open your own practice. And then they spent the first half of the meeting telling us how to break up with your big law partners and how to shop for class A office space in Boston. It was completely irrelevant um, and yeah, unhelpful. And I found that it was actually very difficult to find a lot of the resources and support to, to open the business. How did you and your partner go about uh, putting that together when you opened the business? Absolutely. Yeah. So we actually, um, it, it's tough. There's not a ton of resources, but luckily we you know, sat down and thought about what we wanted to do and it, it's ended up working out. The way we saw it was there was going to be three, three buckets that we pursued. The first bucket was, hey, how do we keep the lights on? Because you realize quickly that any type of legal work pays better than drive and lift. And so that's when we were doing, you know, people getting sued by their credit card companies. Um, funny story on that, actually, at the time, I, I didn't have any money to buy a suit and I had to go to court one time and I was wearing like a mismatched pinstripe, gray pinstripe jacket with brown pants because I just didn't have any other suits to wear. Um, anyways, so we, we had that bucket, you know, doing ten, uh, residential uh, landlord tenant stuff um like tenants getting evicted um really anything you could take and taking anything you could get and a lot of those were through these legal insurance plans so there's these legal insurance plans where people will get them with their job or pay into them and then if something comes up they get you, you know they have lawyers come in and help you get a pretty modest flat fee for you know things like title review landlord tenant uh getting sued by a credit card company so anyways that was the keep the lights on bucket that was the mode, you know, how we made money initially. Um, and then we recognized, hey, the type of work we wanted to do, you know, corporate transactional work, helping startups, you know, we, we don't want to just be good at it. We want to be great at it, right? And there's some things in law that you just can't read about. And so we were like, how do we get that expertise? How do we build that almost associate uh path for ourselves without actually working for someone else. And so what we did is we reached out to a lot of the other small and medium-sized business corporate law firms in, in the area. And we basically said, hey, you know, if you're looking for contract help on deals or financings or anything like that, you know, we'll work for a very reduced rate um, just to kind of get that feedback. So we did, you know, bigger M&A deals, financing. And, and we were the, the idea was, you know, we might be working for 40 bucks an hour, 50 bucks an hour, um, you know, which as you would know, like fairly low, like per billable hour. Um, and uh, with, the, with the caveat that, hey, we want this feedback. We want to be able to get this expertise. And then the third bucket was, you know, the, the, the corporate work for ourselves. And obviously this one was pretty dry when we first started. But over time, we kind of shifted um, you know, and now, and now we're able to have that practice, but that was our strategy to start, right? Something to keep us above water, something to help us gain the actual expertise to become great attorneys. And then the, the work that we could help with. And 
When did you feel like you first had the traction behind you that you were actually starting to grow and you could feel yourself, um, you know, growing into the practice that you wanted to be and not just one that kept the lights on? Yeah. So I would say, so, uh, the first year w- was tough going. Um, you know, it was, as you know, that, you know, people don't just want to work with a lawyer cause you have a, uh, a website. Um, but the second year we started getting a little bit of traction started phasing out some of that stuff. I would say that the beginning of 2020, which was the beginning of our third year, that was really when we, you know, hit that proverbial tipping point. But of course, um, you know, we kind of hit that in January, February, 2020, we moved into a new office space, quadrupled our fixed expenses and then COVID hit and, uh, the phone stopped ringing for like six weeks. And so it was nervy. Um, luckily for us, things came back online and basically since June, May or June of 2020, it's been, you know, frankly, more work than we can handle. It's a lot of times having to kind of turn people away and things like that, um, um, but that that that's what I would say is when it really took that shift. And since then, it's more been about how you balance. Because um, as you would know, right, it's like when you're trading your time for money, as you make more, you, you're oftentimes working very long hours. So now it's more about, hey, how do we how do we uh, work with, you know, uh, how do I say like the clients we really want to work with, right? Yeah. So today, what does it look like? What are you spending your most of your time working on with your clients and what kind of clients are you working with today? Absolutely. Yeah. So we do a lot of uh, small business mergers and acquisitions. There's uh, been a big trend recently, uh, people buying, you know, businesses owned by uh, baby boomers, like blue, blue collar, HVAC, plumbing, things like that, almost acting in like a private equity manner. Um, so we've been doing a fair amount of that. We also do a lot of you know, entity structuring. So people owning real estate and wanting to, I worked with a guy recently who owns several properties and the Airbnbs out all of them. And so we had an interesting discussion around, you know, which, like which entity technically owns the Airbnb account, which is the one that's, you know, it contracting with the person coming into the space. And if we could separate that account actually into a different entity than the one that owns the property potentially. So we've been doing a little bit of research on that to see, you know, if we can even separate out something like that, right? So if something happened, are you going after the company that you chose to go in with the Airbnb with and potentially try to help the the real estate itself? But doing a lot of things like that, complex uh, corporate structurings, doing financings. Typically for us, when we were doing a financing, it's more it's non uh, non venture capital. To I mean, just for from our experience, the VCs like to work with uh, the big law firms. Um, but that's you know we really that that that's the biggest piece. I would say helping people set up their business at the beginning, whether that's an ongoing business or setting up real estate or other asset holdings, and then the small business M and A work. So noting that you are not giving legal advice to any individual and that things vary immensely by state and by um, particular situation. Um, here's kind of the first layup question that I get a lot. Um, you know, it's basically when should I consider getting um, an entity for my business? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think right away, I think that, but I, I think that it's, you know, frankly, a little foolish to not 
get it right away because the thing about it is if you believe, you know, if you don't believe in your business enough to to invest at least some at the beginning to mitigate some of your risk, then, you know, it doesn't make sense to really pursue it anyways, right? I mean, that's at least what I say is that, you know, if you're, if you believe in it and you want to pursue it, do you want to put in all that work to eventually to potentially have an event that happens in the future that not only puts the business at risk, but all of your personal assets. So I think, you know, people should really start it, you know, right, right away if possible. It's, and then hand in hand with that. And as somebody who built your business as a partnership, um, you know, when and why should people can, should, uh, consider partnership agreements or putting down their roles in writing? Yeah, I think if you have a co-owner, you have to do that right away. And what I tell people is, because people come all the time, they're like, oh, well, we're in agreement. And and so I start asking questions. Well, what do you do if this situation arises, right? What happens in this scenario? And then people don't have answers. And what I always tell people is, hey, having these discussions and getting on the same page when things are, are when there's no money on the table is paramount. Because once there's money on the table, people will do crazy things. Um, I mean, I, we've seen being a lawyer working in this area, you see friendships, uh, you know, get ugly and things like that when people don't have written documents in place. And so I think that, you know, with the having a co-owner, it's very important to go through that process right out of the gate so that that way you're on the same page right away. Not, in, not only in case something goes wrong, but I think it also makes sure you're aligned going forward so that, you know, you, you, you go through all those details right away and, and everybody knows their role, what's expected and everything like that. Now, here's my gotcha question on that point. Uh, when you open up the law practice, did you have um, a written partnership agreement in place? Yeah, we actually, so the first day we went and uh, went to a coffee shop, set up all the entities and, and put together our operating agreements and everything like that. Look at that. Practicing what you preach. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I'd expect nothing else, though. I mean, this is what you do. You're working with entrepreneurs and you know businesses of all sizes. But if, if you're recommending that they start from day one, basically, and getting your, your structure correct from the start, that's exactly what you did. And, and that's great to hear. Rory just helped me get all that stuff set last year because we kind of are now taking our real estate investing business much more seriously than it being the side piece and the side hustle. So, you know, the end of last year, we got our entities all set. One thing we did, which is uh, related to a comment that you made earlier with your client that's working on Airbnbs, you know, we set up a management company to manage our own Airbnbs. Uh, so even though I'm the only client, like our properties are the only client and, and an LLC is the client. Uh, we did that to have a separate entity for the management, you know, and who knows, it could even scale into a separate sellable entity by having it that way instead of just you know managing the properties yourself. It's kind of a common thing that happens with a lot of short-term rental operators, which is what I've learned of late. Talk about how people were finding you. You know, the first couple of years you were taking any business that came your way to keep the lights on, I get it. Uh, but now that you're a little more established, you know, was there a turning point somewhere along the way where you landed a client or two that turned into three, four, five, and 10? Are you doing a lot of external marketing, digital marketing, word of mouth? Like, how, how do you grow your business? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a good question, Jason. Um, So we actually, when we first started the firm, that first year, we made a commitment that we would each go to 150 networking events in that first year. So that was three a week. Um, And so our initial mindset was, hey, we're going to just pound the pavement. We're going to try to meet as many people as possible in the local community. Um, And so that really helped us get our name out there. Um, I mean, I'm a, uh, uh, we also kind of, there was a little bit serendipitous with the, with the pandemic, but we pushed hard for uh, digital marketing, right? When we started, got paid for, you know, a, a better looking, more modern website with headshots and, you know, pushed for Google reviews and things like that and SEO, search and optimization. And, um, you know, uh, uh, over time, that building up, and especially, with the pandemic, now that people are using digital means to vet service providers a lot more, we've seen a huge, uh, that's become a huge stream of of business for us, actually, is people just finding us via the internet. Um, But I would say the number one way you get business is just providing five-star service to the people who choose to work with you. Um, It obviously is a slower drip because you have to get business and do good business and things like that over time. Um, but that definitely is the, is the best way to get good qualified business because the referral from somebody who was pleased to somebody else that might need some help is, is always a, um, a warm handoff. But I would say those are the, those are the three ways we really built it. And some of the, a a lot of the in-person networking has shifted more to pushing more on on the digital side now, just because, um, you know, you start getting enough work, it, it gets hard to take, it it gets hard to go to three events a week and things like that. I mean, you're spending a lot of time. So now, and also you meet other people who, um, instead of having to do kind of a shotgun blast, right, you find people who you resonate with that are in similar industries and you can spend kind of more um, targeted time with with those people instead of just going to the the big room with 150 people and shaking hands and kissing babies. Although I do think that that was a great thing. I would tell pe- a lot of people, um, just as a slight side note, that Oftentimes people are afraid of entrepreneurship because they feel like they're not able to go in and work a room or network, or they're afraid of doing these things. And and they're just, you know, Hey, I'm not that type of person. I really think it's a learned skill, almost like anything else. Certainly Josh and I were already pretty comfortable doing it just naturally as, you know, to begin, but we definitely got much better at working rooms and how to network and things like that and how to kind of meet people and things like that over time. So and that that's just my plug of, you know, if anybody's discouraged from entrepreneurship or things like that, just know that, you know, it, it is something that you can get better at over time if you're willing to just dive in. Well, that leads me to like a really kind of just maybe specific question on it. So if you're investing a lot of time or we're investing a lot of time going to networking events, what was your follow-up strategy when you made a connection um, out and about? We'll be right back. Every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves, true cash flow, including depreciation, and your true net equity on a property is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. 
Yeah, I mean, so it was pretty. It was pretty straightforward. I would just get everybody's business cards and then go to lunch or coffee or happy hour, and really just the people I resonated with the most, I, I stayed in touch with, or people who seemed like they were in similar industries. And I mean, because it, when we first started, right? I mean, we, we had all the time in the world. I mean, we were working like crazy, driving with things like that. But you know, it's not like you don't have money. It's not like you're going on long, lavish vacations and things like that. So it was easy to really, you know, do five coffees in a day or something like that. Um, and then over time, you know, the, the, the amount of people you're following up with kind of whittles down as well. Um, but initially that is how, how we did it. Uh, were you driving Lyft home from the networking events? <laughs> <laughs> not not always, but it it was funny. I actually thought when I would drive Lyft, I could tell people I was a lawyer and give them my card. And the reaction I always got was that like, wow, you must be a shitty lawyer if you're trying to Lyft. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they didn't see the hustle. I mean, when you're in a Lyft, you're going to the airport from the airport, you're going out drinking, you're coming home there. You know, it's probably not the most qualified customers, but you never know. And, you know, it's worth the uh it's worth the question because if you don't ask it then they'll never know right i actually right. i just took an uber home from the airport yesterday and my uber driver didn't speak english and he, he sped you know, he spoke espanol and i speak really really poor spanish but i did take a year of it about 15 years ago and it all just came flooding back to me and we had the most broken conversation in spanish that was probably very very high level and i think he was amused that i was at least trying um, but you know, had I not tried, I would have never delighted him for that ride. And had he not said that he didn't speak English, we would have just sat there in quiet. So, um, it's yeah. good that you're asking that question. Going back to the networking though, you know, that, that is a, that's a lot three a week for each of you. Um, you know, this is when you were probably single and didn't have tons of commitments or anything, but that hustle is, is what it takes sometimes. And networking events scare the bejesus out of some people and others, they love them. Um, when you are at the networking event, I'm guessing that you found these things like on Facebook or Meetup or any of those local sources. And I'm guessing, and you can correct me, but were they of all different types of categories as well? You know, like a digital tech entrepreneurs and real estate investors and people that are, you know, looking to connect over their financial, you know, commonalities or anything. Um, did you try to meet everybody in the room or, or did you nurture a couple of those relationships at each of those events? You know, we were really taking the shotgun approach at first because a lot of the times we were just at so many different events. Sure. We would see some of the same people, but at least initially we were trying to, you know, not avoid talking to the same people, but as much as possible, just talk to new people, um, to see who, you know, just, just to kind of, bring more awareness to um our firm and everything like that because you know we 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 did find that uh, you know because at, at networking events right there there are some people who kind of bounce around a lot there but there are also some people who get you know in one conversation and ultimately what we got to is it was like hey if i've already met this guy and i have his contact info we've already met outside of a networking event you know I didn't come to the networking event to just only talk to this guy again. So for us, at least it made more sense to, to meet other people because it also kind of sharpened the skill of being able to have and connect with new people instead of having that comfortability of, um, someone we already do. Yeah. 
And people go to these events for a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, I, I just mentioned I took an Uber back from the airport. I was at a conference in Nashville and I I tried to balance um, sticking with people who I knew uh, with connecting with people that I had never met in person and meeting some new people uh, for the first time. And I was also trying to be cognizant of the people that I was spending time with if they wanted not to have the lurch of me asking lots of questions of them and have them, you know, if they wanted to go out there and work the room as well. I was I was trying to get the, the, the cues of does this person want to continue sitting down with me and having lunch or whatever, or do they want to kind of go out as well? And it's it's a challenge sometimes because I've also had those people that will will see me at the event and they they hightail it over to me and then it's it's hard to kind of get rid of them when you're done with the conversation. So it's a skill. I definitely had that happen before. I for whatever reason about my personality type, a lot of the shyest people at events like find me and then I'm like cornered by like four <laughs> people who don't none of them want to go talk to other people. So um it well, can be I, tough. Yeah, and, and Nick, you you must have that demeanor at the events. I mean, you 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 were very easy to talk to so far in this conversation, so I'm sure that's the case. You know, you come across, come across as non-threatening. Um, I wanted to get to some of the final questions that we asked of all our guests, but I actually did want to ask one of the questions first that um, that your 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 team uh, sent over to me, and Rory has a question too. So, Rory, you do yours first, and then yeah. I'm going to get to one of the one of those questions. It's, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask um, ask you while we have your expertise here. Um, one thing I've kind of noticed anecdotally in the real estate world is that it, a lot of the the real estate brokerages that are old owned by older people are now starting to retire, and there seems to be a wave of sales of these small businesses to younger um, business owners. Am I crazy with kind of that anecdotal um, observation? If you are thinking about buying or selling your service business, what are some things that you should be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I don't think you're crazy at all. We've seen a, we've seen it in real estate and accounting, you know, multiple kind of service-based businesses like that, that, that that's starting to happen. You know, for me, I think what I always tell people if they're, if they're looking to sell the business is valuable business is one where they're going to be less involved in the day to day. So as much as possible, if you're looking to sell, if you can figure out a way to, you know, build processes and things like that, that kind of make you less important to the operation of the business, you're going to be able to get a much higher valuation because then somebody can buy it and, and, and you know, they don't need to take over your role, right? They don't want to necessarily buy a job. They want to buy a business a lot of times. Now, with a lot of these businesses where you're more or less buying a book of business, um, you know, the the thing that you just want to make sure is one, when you're selling the business, that you sell to the right buyer. Because oftentimes these deals are going to be structured with some you know, component of an earnout where, hey, how many clients do we retain over X amount of time, things like that. Um, and so you want to make sure you sell to the right buyer so you don't have somebody come in that has a totally different culture or way of doing things that drives away your old clients. Um, you know, with things like with things like real estate, right, where you may be kind of buying more of the brand or things like that, um, you know, just making sure you really understand what you're buying, you know, wh- what that brand means and, and, and things like that. Do your due diligence. Um, yeah. Did I answer all the questions? Sorry, you had a couple of them. That was good. And maybe think I know in um, 
in our businesses, the earnout is the most important um, negotiated part of the the contract because you need um, that smooth transition. And I've always thought of that from the the value of the earnout um, in terms of the buyer of the business because they want to make sure that the old owner is going to help facilitate the transition as much as possible. But I've never really thought of it the other way around. As a seller, you want to make sure that the buyer is actually doing their job um, to retain the business for the sake of the earnout as well. Well, especially I, you know, because I just actually think about that specifically because my the accountant for our law firm recently sold her practice, and so we've been going through that transition. And if you don't like the person who's who bought the business, right? You're not consulted in whether that happens or not. Um, and so if you didn't like them, you didn't want to work with them, then you're going to go work with somebody else. And so it's, you know, it's important. It's important from both sides that they, that they think through those things. I mean, going back to the networking, people like to do business with people who they like and you're shaking, shaking hands with people and following up and having coffee and drinks and meals and stuff with them. You know, that's, probably a better strategy or a good strategy to grow your business and retain business because of that customer relationship. You're not just a face on the internet. I mean, the internet could facilitate that first conversation, but, you know, it really comes down to doing business with people who you like. And, you know, not right. 90 minutes ago, Rory and I were just having the same conversation about earnouts and, uh, you know, selling, not that Rory's selling anything or I'm selling anything, but, you know, he went to a conference where we were talking about selling franchises and, um, you know, how to value a real estate company that has a broker and X agents and X business. I went to a conference that, you know, was talking about short-term rental operators and how to value your business. What multiple off of your EBITDA do you have if you want to sell your co-hosting real estate business, co-hosting um, short-term rental business to a larger company and what the earnout period is. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're an entrepreneur who is looking to get into business, um, you know, don't just think about the beginning and don't just think about operating your business, but think about the exit, uh, just like the big companies do. You know, you don't have to exit your business, but someday you might pass it on to your heirs. Someday you might want to go do something else. And, you know, there's certainly a way to get value for all the hard work that you've done. Um, but that leads into like my last question, which was actually is on the front side of it. Like, what are some things, like two or three tips that you might have to a new entrepreneur that might reach out to you for the first time um, as to how they could best protect their business when they're just launching it. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alex Brayshaw. Join me as I celebrate the positive impact of business and what drives the people behind it. It's a chance to hear from business leaders, emerging sectors and industry influencers about their unfinished business in just 25 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the, the the first piece, right, is what we said before: is you got to have some type of li- limited liability entity in place. I think right away out of the gate. And what I say is, you know, legal. Uh, what we do, right, legal in this sense is is really risk mitigation. And I like to tell people to think about it as as kind of being on a spectrum, right? Of you know, hey, doing nothing is the worst thing you could do. And so even if somebody's like, Hey, I don't have the money to pay an attorney, you know, I, there, there are faults to things like legal zoom and things like that, but you know, it, it's going to be better than doing absolutely nothing. Right. Even just filing for your own, you know, doing some Google searching, 
and even just following with the Secretary of State and getting, uh, you know, in Colorado, the Secretary of State website is very user friendly. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do some of the the real basic, just a hey, file with the, at least in Colorado. Um, certainly don't encourage people to do their own legal work, but, but oftentimes if you're at that, you know, fork in the road where it's, Hey, do nothing because I have, don't have the money to pay a lawyer or at least do something, um, you know, myself, you know, we often say, Hey, think about that on the spectrum, right? At least you're getting a little bit closer to, to peak risk mitigation, right? So that's the, that's the first big thing. Make sure that you, you have, uh, an entity in place. Um, I think that the second big thing, uh, to mitigate risk right out of the gate is, is just make sure when you're, when you're doing business, you have some type of written documentation. Um, because if you don't have things in writing, then oftentimes that's where disputes arise. Um, you know, you know, insurance is obviously something that you should consider depending on your industry, right? If you're doing different things that carry higher risk, um, that's going to be even more important. Um, but I would say the biggest thing is making sure that you have those legal documents in a row, really starting to at least talk to an attorney. I mean, even though the, the price tag can sometimes be intimidating, establishing that relationship and having somebody that you can go to that can help you out on things is, is, is big. But I would also say one other thing to, to think about when you start a business that's not necessarily purely, hey, risk mitigation is, you know, figure out what your business is, the industry, and try to find industry groups or something where you can have a little bit of a sense of community. Because I think in my experience, perseverance is the number one trade in successful entrepreneurs, like staying in the game, being willing to keep at it, even if you suffer short-term failures. And it, it can be discouraging when you're out on the path alone, even if you're with you know one business partner. If you don't have people that you can kind of lean on when you're in downtimes and things like that, it's going to hard, be hard to be successful. Yeah, I agree. I think that free information online only goes so far. Uh, networking groups online are great, but they're often a lot of noise and clutter. Uh, I'm in a mastermind myself where I'm talking to a lot of people that are in uh, our real estate investing and short-term rental space and like just running ideas by them, getting, you know, people to talk to if it's a, a attorney reference an insurance company reference getting your insurance company to talk to your attorney you know because oftentimes when everyone's talking together your cpa your attorney and your insurance company that's usually leads to more success uh but yeah i know great words of wisdom uh i'm sure that we could probably go on uh, for many many hours uh but you know that's been enough free advice you've given us nick right now mm -hmm. so we'll uh we'll make sure that we uh, get to uh the our final questions then you could tell everyone where they can reach out to you so you can get some more clients and uh and earn even more business than you are right now i know that you're really swamped <laughs> but hey we all got to keep growing right Absolutely. uh final questions we have for you just as a way to wrap it up and uh, get to know you a little bit better uh we ask these of all of our guests that come on the real estate law podcast uh, first question, if you could get on stage for a half hour and talk about any subject in the world with zero preparation, and it doesn't have to be about law or anything related to that, what would that be? You know, I would talk about how um, starting a business and entrepreneurship can give you a life that um, is is better and, and different than what anybody else really or kind of the, the typical life. I, I think that I'm passionate about showing people that, 
hey, if you're willing to dive in and bet on yourself, you can build a life for yourself where you're in control, where you can spend time with your family and go on vacations and do the things that you want to do and live a life well lived. Um, that's what I could talk about for a long time. Yeah. There's no good or bad time to start a business. Like you're never going to get the green light that says this is the perfect time to do it. And it's never going to be a red light saying, do not start a business by any means right this second. Um, you know when it's right for you. You know, it could be a work event. People are getting laid off uh, a lot these days at a lot of companies. And a lot of them are reevaluating and saying, maybe I can finally launch that business that I want to launch. Or some people are coming out of school just like you did. They're either saying, I don't want to go into the job market or it's not responding well to them, or they just have a great idea that they want to work for themselves. Uh, and then they jump into that entrepreneurial spirit. And um, I think that would be a well-attended conversation that you have on that stage. Uh, second question we have, if you could tell us something that happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today. Um, hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think that the biggest thing was that process when I was studying for the, for the bar exam where, you know, cause for me, you know, it, it kind of always been, Hey, do well in college, go to a good law school, go do well in law school, go work for a big law firm. Things will kind of make sense that sh the path will open up. Um, I think that that time period of being able to assess, Hey, what is, what does that end goal look like really transformed my whole life and how I, how I work. I had a mentor once tell me, um, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take mm -hmm. you there. Um, and so for me, that resonated with me because it was like, Hey, figure out what that end goal looks like a little bit better so that you know what the first step looks like, right? It's tough to know which direction to go. in if you don't know where you're headed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the circumstance that you were in is, is what helps guide you. You know, if uh, Rory had the same situation when he came out of law school. <laughs> And absolutely. And it was, um, you know, I had the same expectations that I was going to do well in law school, go to a, a big company and, you know, make the six figures out of the gate. But um, I graduated into a recession. The big law uh, companies were still, you know, had people on backlog that they committed to hire years prior. And that wasn't an option. So and I instead of looking for a next place to work, I looked for clients instead. And then I haven't looked back. Uh, finally, Nick, tell us something that you're listening to or watching or reading these days. Yeah. So I actually just got done watching that The Last of Us on, on HBO um, about, about kind of zombies, which I, I usually don't like zombie stuff much, but I thought it was well made. I thought it was interesting. Uh, of course, being in Colorado, I watch, uh, I, I watch South Park pretty regularly too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that is the show that just keeps on going, huh? I remember that mm -hmm. from, what, 20, 25 years ago. I don't even know when it started, but um, The Last of Us, we watched a couple episodes of that ourselves. I was a big Walking Dead fan when it first came out, and then it kind of kind of tailed off. And, you know, it's tough having, like, an almost four-year-old to really sit down mm -hmm. and watch a, a show that where I'm not going to fall asleep during it after we get her to bed. Right. Um, but the last of us is, it was, it is really well done. Um, it makes, makes you think twice about eating mushrooms and fungus. It's interesting you say that about walking dead, right? Because I thought the same thing. I think that it's the nature of the genre. Like how do you do a zombie show that's too long? Because it, right. If it happened, it's like everybody either dies or like they figure it out and then, mm -hmm. 
do you really care to watch a show that's about seven people rebuilding the world or something like that? That's less interesting than running from the zombies and things like that. I do think that the most interesting part of all those shows, and I'm going to throw the Headmaid's Tale in there too, because we haven't seen the most recent uh, season of that, but we've watched all the other seasons. I th- I think the most fascinating part is the very beginning as to how on earth did this happen, right? So yeah. Walking Dead, it was the same thing. It was like, how how did we start down this road? And The Last of Us, you know, you see life as as we know it, and then suddenly things start going really badly, you know, one thing after another. Same thing with Handmaid's Tale. I mean, all these shows that lead into the uh, apocalypse that's happened. I-, I love the beginning part of it that explains like, oh, my God, how did this happen? But, um, Well, great. Well, Nick, uh, uh, we've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being here on the show. Can you tell everybody how they can reach out to you if they want to say hi and learn more about you and your firm? Yeah, I'll keep it simple. The best way is is really just going to our website. That's troxelfitchlaw.com. And there you, you know, our phone number, our email, things like that will all be there. Yeah. So that, that's the best way. Just keep it simple. And we'd be happy to, you know, just so people know we, we do a free 15 minute consultation calls. So if you ever have questions or things like that, we're always happy to chat. Awesome. Quarter hour, not billable. And that, that's a good savings in the, in the law world. Rory, how can people reach out to you? People can find me through my law practice, Urban Village Legal. That's urbanvillagelegal.com or my real estate brokerage, Next Home Title Town, nexthometitletown.com. And as always, all this goes into the show notes. Uh, so you don't have to write it down if you're driving. Just go check us out online and you will link over to Rory Stuff and Nick's things. And you can reach out to me, Jason, at nexthometitletown.com. If you'd like to be on this podcast, you have comments for us, feedback for us, feedback for Nick or anything, we read all of that. So Uh, If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a five-star review. We love those. Nick, we learned that from you right earlier on. Ask for the review and get them on Google. But yeah, it really does help us with the podcast. And uh, we read all of our comments. um, And we'd appreciate it if you could just drop us that quick review. And we thank you so much for listening. Um, Hey, Nick, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for appearing on the Real Estate Law Podcast. We'll have to follow up. Yeah, it's my my pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great yeah, to meet we'll, you guys. we'll have to reach out again and have like a follow up to this conversation and and see how things are going with you. If we all survive the uh, the fungus apocalypse that yeah. the Last of Us is is telling us is happening, Rory, thank you very much for being part of this, and thank you to the listener or viewer. We really appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts real estate council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.